0: Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott and Melissa Hale.
1: Good morning, everybody. All right, I'm excited. Today is the big day. At long last, we are in our final Sunday today in the series that we've been in all all year long so far, uh, asking the big questions of what it is. Means to be human? Who am I in God's eyes? Uh, from his perspective, what is my purpose? Uh, why, do I, why am I the way I am? We've been asking all kinds of big questions here. We've looked at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's, that's, a, that's a lot to attempt to do in eight weeks, but we've been trying to do that. And uh, today, I'm really excited. It's going to be a lot of fun because I get to be joined by my wonderful wife, Melissa. Everybody say hi, Good Mel. morning.
0: Good morning, everybody.
1: All right. All right. So today's Q&A Sunday, we're going to attempt to answer some of the questions that you guys have been sending in over the last seven weeks. We're going to try to go as, as fast as we can. We might not always go as in-depth into each of these subjects as you know, we possibly could because we're trying to get to lots of different things. And so if something we say today kind of whets your appetite, and you're like, man, I'd like to talk about more about that, great. Make a note, take it to Home Life or something like that, and discuss it in community there. By the way, this is our last week of home life. This week, before we take our little spring break, and then we're gonna we'll relaunch our groups in April, uh, the first of April. So make sure you go. You don't want to miss this week. It's gonna. So be if a you ever wanted
0: months. to visit and not commit, this week is a great week to go. Because <laughs> you don't even have to go the week after that.
1: That's right. This is it. This is one more <laughs> week. Um, I can tell you this though. The questions that come in are, are really good. I love our, our questioning community. I love that what we're you know what we're building here at Generations. That's really what it's about. We want to be a safe place to come, for everybody to come and ask those questions that are burning in your heart. Uh, we don't want to be people who are just complacent, right? Or we aren't curious to grow or, or, or willing to, to grow or change, you know, like we know it all or something like that. And it, questions are good. It, we see it in the Bible. Questions are good. God likes our questions. He can handle our questions. And as long as our attitude is, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to grow closer to Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. Oh, questions are, are a good thing. I think actually it 's when we stop asking questions that we get in trouble if we 're a person who stops asking questions we 're not asking those questions we spend we start spending all of our energy at that point just correcting others that 's when we stop being disciples and we, we harden into these sort of like gatekeepers of our of our pet doctrines of dead religion and things like that that 's not what we want to be
0: you know i I heard something interesting this week. Uh, I was listening to um, a, a Jewish scholar explain. What the Quran means. In essence, the Quran means submit to God. But the Torah, right, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the name Israel, which God gives, means struggle or wrestle with God. See, God doesn't demand anything of us. He allows you to wrestle and ask questions mm. because that's how much he wants to be in an intimate relationship. He's not afraid of your questions because he knows the truth that is the answer to those questions will just draw you closer mm. into relationship.
1: That's so good. That's good. So Good night, everybody. <laughs> there you go. That's, we could leave on that one. Uh, I think today's also going to be fun for those of you who kind of struggle with ADD. This is going to be great because we're just going to be flying from like thing to thing. You'll never be bored. It'll be like flipping channels today, all right? So here we go. We're going to dive right in. Let's get right involved so we can answer as many of these as we possibly can. Number one, someone said, why do we say that Adam and Eve played the blame game after sinning? Didn't they take responsibility for what they did when God asked? It's a good question. We talked about this in week one. Uh, So this person's argument here is that Uh, the text doesn't explicitly say that Adam and Eve didn't take responsibility for their actions. It it doesn't say that they lied or anything like that. Uh, They just told God what happened. But I would kind of disagree with this. If you look at the text, I think to take full responsibility would be uh, to say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I sinned. I'm sorry. I ate. I disobeyed. Rather than that woman you made, right? Or the snake, you know, that you put in the garden, you know, I didn't ask him to come. But I mean, now they, they did uh, admit to what happened. They were caught red handed. So what else are they going to do? Um, but they react to God's questioning uh, in a classic sort of defend and deflect maneuver. And I think we've all kind of seen those kind of uh, responses from people. Have you ever gone to somebody, confronted somebody over maybe something they did uh, and you took offense to, or something like that, and you get one of those apologies that sounds like, well, listen, if you misunderstood what I said, or if anybody was offended, then <laughs> I'm sorry, right? And you're left standing there going like, what was that? That's not an apology, right? And sometimes they'll come back with, well, I said I'm sorry, what more do you want? And, uh, and it's, it's like one of those things, it, it, your route to I'm sorry is is blaming everybody else in the process often. Uh, and it's acknowledging something happened, but in the, in the process we, we dissipate responsibility. And that's just something very common that we do. I see that very clearly in Adam and Eve's apology here. They admit what they did by immediately recounting facts that make themselves less to blame. And that's how you know when you're doing this. You're recounting facts that make yourself look a little better mm-hmm. than, than really what happened. Um, and, and this is just something that happens all the time to us, right? Um, and, and scholars, both Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, agree, uh, m- most of them are in agreement here, that the writer here of Genesis, there's some intentionality in pointing out the manner of their response. The first two words of both of the, Adam and Eve is somebody else. You know, that woman, that snake, right? Exactly, exactly. And here's the thing in this, something like this, the point of this isn't for us to stand back and go, Adam and Eve. How horrible like I can't believe that happened right now the point of the story of Adam and Eve is that it happens it happened it's happening all the time we do it all the time don't we every day we blame shift we deflect whenever we sacrifice humility and relationship in order to protect our ego uh, to protect our need from coming across too bad this is what happens so don't play the blame game blame game there we go
0: Amen. Okay. That was number one. You ready for question number two?
1: Moving right along.
0: Okay. Let's move to the New Testament, shall we? Uh, This was a question asked about James. This person said, in James 4.11, it says we should be doers of the law. How does grace fit in? So, how about we just read a little of James? Because I find context always helps. Mm -hmm. So, All right, we're gonna start from the beginning. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it. So you commit murder and you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Quick background, this is the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, and he's writing to Christian Jews, okay? This is the letter, so this is who he's talking to. Adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing? That's what the scripture says. God yearns jealously for the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? James.
1: Ouch. He's not very warm and fuzzy.
0: James. It's like he's the brother of Jesus or something. Okay, so the first question we need to ask ourselves is what is the law that he is talking about here? And we know from earlier in the letter, he's not talking about the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. He expressly says the law of love. Who gave us the law of love? Jesus, Jesus gives us the law. Do you remember the scene where the, they try to go, okay, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, there's two, right? And they're both love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one, the second one is like it. What does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Can you slander and attack and murder and be jealous if you love your neighbor? No. And if you judge the law of love, do you have that right? No. No, because the mercy that we've been given How can we not give to others? And so, this is the law he's talking about. And the rest of New Testament scripture confirms this in Romans 10, 4. It says, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, right? So that we could be in relationship with him. Galatians 3, 23 through 25. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. And what a rough Mm -hmm. disciplinarian it was, Mm. right? Rough. So that we might be justified by what? Faith. Made right, made righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to that old mean and possibly strict Impossible to do everything right, disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through? Through faith. And Jesus offers us, right? Jesus does what we could never achieve ourselves. Salvation by grace. Unearned, undeserved. Nobody, nobody earned it, right? We can't brag about it. By grace, through our faith in who? Through our faith in Jesus, Jesus, the fact that Jesus did it for us. Ephesians 2 8 and 9, you know the verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now here's the deal the grace is the gift, but the faith is you putting your arms out and receiving the gift. Mm. You don't have to take the gift, it's available to every person on the planet. But does everyone receive that gift? No, they don't receive it. Faith is receiving the gift. Faith is going, yes, Jesus, you did it, and yes, I receive it. Amen. I'm putting my faith in you. And so Jesus takes our sin and our shame and our weakness and our old ugh, and he becomes our righteousness, right, and offers us a new life. And that's what James is talking about in all five chapters. Don't you know that you're a new creation in Christ and you don't act like the old you and you don't act like the world acts? There's a better way. There's a better way. And so we know we can't work for it. We know we believe in Jesus and we know we receive what he's done and that's grace through faith. Galatians 2.16 says it like this. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, right? The Pharisees tried to do that. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you starting to see the relationship between grace and law, right? First of all, old law, uh uh-uh. Because when Jesus came, And he said, I have fulfilled the law. He says, now guess what? I give you a law of liberty in me. You're not bound to do things because you need to earn righteousness. Out of love, you get to do things to show the world who I am, right? I created you to do good works, to show the world who I am, and guess what? You know what grace does? You're not earning salvation anymore. The things you do are worship to me. They become worship." Everything you do, everything you say, gets to become worship. Um, I'm skipping all around because I just love it so much. Okay, so let's go back to James four twelve. He says there is one lawgiver. Who is that? That's, you can say it. Jesus. There is one lawgiver. There is one judge. Who's that? Jesus. That's right. Remember. Jesus said, all authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, right? One, yeah. has Jesus judged you? No. So, then how could we ever judge our neighbor? Wow. Yeah. Earlier in James, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. In the liberty of the law of love, Of the love of God, the more mercy you sow, the more mercy you get back. The more grace that you sow, the more grace you get back. The more generosity that you sow, the more generosity flows. It is a beautiful law of love that's not bondage. It's freedom. And that's the relationship of the grace and the law there. And, and, and Pastor Albert was saying yesterday, I'm going to steal what you said because it was so good. He said to me, you know what grace, the, the power of God's grace, it invites you to this beautiful table to feast. And the first gift of grace is salvation. And salvation helps you step up to the table and look at all God's purchased for you on, on the cross, everything Jesus bought for you, every good gift, right? What did Jesus do? It's not only your redemption, it's healing, it's wisdom, it's peace. There's so many beautiful gifts on the table, and grace helps you access those things. And when you receive those things inside of you, it changes you. And can you call on the grace of the Lord every day to feed you with what you need? Yes. And here's the difference. If I don't need the grace of the Lord today, am I a proud person or a humble person? It says, God resists the proud, but what does he pour out on the humble? He pours out, not poured out, pours out Mm. grace on the humble. There is the nourishment of the grace that you need for the thing that you need today. Mm. Right? Mm. The grief, no, no, no. Lay that down and receive the joy of the Lord for the oppression, the peace, right? For the sickness, the healing, all of that we have access to because of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to skip to, can we skip to 2 Corinthians? My grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power, my power is made perfect in weakness And this Paul adds, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And when you have access to that grace and you have laid that down before the Lord, and whatever that is that you needed, that the spirit of God in you gives to you, do you know what those see around you? They don't see weakness, struggle, pain. They see an overcomer. And they go, huh, you don't act like everybody else acts. What's happening? The power of Christ dwells in me and I overcome these things every day. And friends, that is a witness to the world. That is a witness. The people of God are overcomers because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and the things that the world try to do. Um, and so praise the Lord. You, uh, I just want to end on this, this last scripture about the law, what we had to do. And we had to work, and we knew we couldn't, and Jesus came. And now look at the freedom here. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what works? Good works. Good works. Works that are in righteousness? Works that are in salvation? Works that are in the love of God? No. Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why? To be salt, to be light, and to bring him glory and honor. And that's the freedom of relationship with him.
1: Amen. Amen. Woman, I want to sit down and let you keep preaching. Stop it.
0: Stop it. Okay, all right, all right,
1: we'll go on. Here we go, number three. Question number three says, if we live in a body, what's the difference between our soul and our spirit? We've talked about some of these different elements of ourselves. Uh, up there you see a few foreign words there. The Bible's written in Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament's Hebrew, New Testament's Greek. So the soul in the Old Testament's known as the Nefesh in the Greek, suke. And the Spirit is ruach, that's fun to say. And Greek is pneuma. So what we're really asking when we get into these kind of questions about the soul and the spirit, is the, you know, what's the difference there? Is there a difference there? What you're really asking is. Are we a trichotomy or a dichotomy? There's these terms, and they're really important to some people, nerds like me. Um, a trichotomy is a three-part person, or the dichotomous view is that we're a two-part person. And what's important to note here, first of all, is that historically, uh, Christians in the church have kind of fallen into two camps here, and there's debate uh, between them. Because, and the reason is because sometimes the apostle Paul and others speak in terms of two parts. We even looked at some of those scriptures during our series. Uh, He'll talk about the inner man or the outer man. He'll talk about the old self, the new self, the the flesh and the spirit or the flesh and the mind. At other times, there there are several verses in the New Testament that seem to suggest very clearly body, soul, spirit. And uh, we'll just put these on the screen here just so you... We won't read through them, but uh, for those of you who might just be listening, by podcast is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Hebrews 4.12, and 1 Corinthians 14.14 here. The reason why I'm listing these is because these are really the only verses that talk that way. What's not up here are are the multitude of other verses that either talk in terms of a two-part human, or they list a whole bunch of parts uh, like like the fact that Jesus says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Wait, so we're up to four parts now. Um, and then if you add spirit, which he didn't mention, uh, and then we, what about body and the flesh? Now, how many parts are we up to? And I think at that point is when we, we, we're starting to read the text wrong. Um, let's see. Are we in that one? There we go. So, all of these different ways of speaking, there are different ways of looking at the human experience. What is going on, and we know for we know without a doubt that there is a material and an immaterial self, and that immaterial self might have different facets to it. Can have different facets in how we we function, um, and so in some conversations. Uh, it's helpful to talk about the mind, or to talk about the spirit, or we just have to look at the context. That's what's important. We need to look at the context to see what is the author using his words for in this passage, but then we don't have to really get all that legalistic about it uh, and apply the same to every single passage. Sometimes, if if you're looking at it, it's the different ways they speak, the differences are because of just different cultures, different figures of speech even. For instance, today, if I, if I was talking to you, if you and I were talking about our passions or our love, we would talk about what? Our heart, right? Passion. I love you. I love you with all my heart, right? Soul's good too. <laughs> right. Or, or
0: soul, right? Actually, you're proving the point.
1: You're proving the point. We would use both of that, wouldn't we? In scripture, it's interesting. When they talk about their passions, they use a Greek word called schlagnon the literal word, the literal meaning of it is intestines, the guts, right? Try putting that in a Valentine's card, right? Baby, I love you with all my intestines. And it's true. I do (laughs) everything that I am. So, uh, so that, that would be a difference. We would say heart or soul, you know, but they would say intestines, my guts. Um, The apostle Paul, here's another example. It's interesting. In one passage, he mentions both spirit and soul that could divide, be able to divide the spirit and the soul. At other times, it seems like he almost uses spirit and soul almost interchangeably, just to keep things spicy, right? And, uh, and when it comes to our physical self, the, what we would just call body, he, he uses two different words to differentiate the flesh from the body. He uses a word, sarx, from soma. So that's interesting. So are we dichotomous or trichotomous? I would say yes. I would say yes. In one sense, we are made of the, the physical and the supernatural. We know that. But within that immaterial self. There are different aspects of our, of our functioning. There's the heart and the soul and the mind, the inner being, the spirit. Yes, maybe even the guts, right? Now, just so you know, so try to, you know, keep things as clear as we can. In our circles, in our traditions, if you hang around here very long, we um, typically refer to three facets of a human being. We'll, we'll talk about our body. That's the uh, flesh, blood, you know, physical stuff here. We'll talk about our soul. Very often what we're referring to is our mind, our will and emotions, the things we're thinking and feeling, you know, that kind of we'll so refer to that as our soul. And then our spirit, that supernatural self that has been reborn and has that it's made alive, it'll live forever with Jesus. But even here, understand, there are some in our tribe, uh, just from their background, they prefer the word soul for that essential self that lives forever. And that's okay. That's okay. So in short, What we want to do is read each scripture in context, always a good idea, Um, and and it's good that we understand both of these perspectives, so if we come across somebody who's, we can understand, oh, I see where you're coming from, and we could just walk in unity with that, right? But we definitely, it's not something we need to divide over.
0: All right. Okay, question number four. How's everybody hanging in here? Okay. These are your questions, so, I mean... (laughs) It's not our fault. Uh, question number four. This is a great question. Can I expect that God will heal others that I lay hands on and pray for, even though I have sickness in my own body? So, bless the Lord. Okay, here's how I understand this question. And you could kind of think about it a couple of different ways, but here's how I'm answering it. Here's how I understand it. This person has asked for healing for themselves but they still struggle with sickness. And so since they haven't personally received their healing, does it mean their faith is ineffective? Um, So I still have this disease. I still have this struggle. So because I still have it, my faith, it must not be powerful enough, right? to bring that healing to me, and if it's not powerful enough for me, how can it be powerful enough for someone else? How can I do any good for someone else? And if, if you're worried, if you're ever worried that your faith is ineffective or it's defective, then you're allowing your experience to determine the value of your faith. And if the value of our faith is based on our own experiences, that's not faith at all. It's fate. Hmm. That's fate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you're placing your trust in the results, whatever they are. So, um, that makes you a failure if you don't get what you pray for, and it gives you the credit if you do get what you pray for. Wow. Yeah. So... Healing didn't manifest in my body. Oh, my faith. My faith was weak and I'm a failure. Or I got my healing. My faith is a success. My faith was big enough, right? Results-based faith. You know what else it can look like? It can look like that unwavering trust in a doctor's diagnosis. Or it can look like your Google searches and you trying to figure out and get other voices to be that voice of reason to you. Or it can look like watching the news and believing everything they say and then making decisions based on that thing, right? Whatever feeds your egos or your fears is actually results and circumstantial driven faith. And Christians should not put their faith in circumstances or results, good or bad. We place our faith in a person, and his name is? Jesus. Jesus. And I think this is why Jesus tells us, if you have faith the size of a what? Mustard seed. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, what, you can move a mountain. Hmm. And I think it's so funny that we obsess about the size of the seed. Hmm. We obsess about the size of the seed when it's not about the size of the seed. It's the soil you put your seed into. Come on. It's the soil you put your seed into, and Jesus is the soil that we plant our faith seed in. And friends, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, it's the soil that makes the difference, right? So Jesus is the rock that we stand on. He's the source of healing and deliverance. So recapping for the kids in the back, number one, you don't heal anybody doesn't that take the pressure off? Aren't you relieved? Number two, Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the healer. So when Jesus is the source and the focus of our faith, not what has happened for us or not happened for us, Jesus is the source. You know what we get to do? We get to lay down our insufficiency for his sufficiency because our God is sufficient. And we lay down a doctor's diagnosis, we lay down our Google searches, we lay down what we watched on the news, we lay everything down, our doubts and fears, at the feet of the supremacy of our Savior and our Lord, whose name is above every other name, the name of Jesus. Can you imagine? Our God is so powerful. His name is above every other name. And you have access to that name. Right? You have the authority to speak his name. Oh, praise the Lord. But there is one essential matter back to this question. Can I expect God to heal when I pray for others? That depends on if you believe you serve a God who heals. Do you believe you serve a God who heals? Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet... We accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. The table's been set, friends. The table is set. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Matthew 8, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose. I will do it. I am willing. Another version says, Be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and what? Curing every disease and sickness. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed how many? All of them. them. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Is God a healer? Is God willing to heal? Has God made healing available? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there sick people in heaven? Is there lame people in heaven? Is there dead people in heaven? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is a healer. And his spirit is in you. And when you lay hands on the sick, let me tell you, friends, expect recovery. It may not happen when you think it will, how you think it will, I don't know. But if you're praying for me, I would like you to have some expectation. Do you want the person praying for you to believe it can happen? Right. But it's not about the size of your seed. It's about the soil you put your seed in. I believe God's a healer. And when I pray for you, I'm going to believe he's a healer. I'm going to believe he's a healer. So, yes, the answer is yes. You can expect God to heal. And there's no further need to qualify the sentence, even if I haven't had my healing yet? No, because Jesus doesn't ever disqualify you, and he can't be disqualified. He can't be disqualified. So the answer is yes, even if you're still waiting and walking out your own healing.
1: Good. All right. Question number five. How often can we sin before we lose our salvation? Great question.
0: 16 and a half times. To- no.
1: That's it. That's it. Let's look at a passage here. Second Peter one. Peter says this for this very reason, make every effort. In other words, this, this is this part's on us. We've got a job to do here. So make every effort to support your faith. In other words, to, to grow, to, to add to your faith goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, if they are increasing among you, some translations say if you're growing in these qualities, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now here's a question a Christian really should ask, how can I be most effective for Jesus? How can I keep growing? Not, have I reached that ultimate maturity pinnacle so I don't need to grow anymore? Or or at what stage can I slide back, you know, before I get kicked out? The, the question, how am I most effective? That is, that's a better question. Just keep growing. Just keep growing, not having arrived at any particular stage. So, May I put it this way, that the question for, for how often can we sin before we lose our salvation is really asking the wrong question. I understand where it's coming from. I really do. Um, but you know, we never ask that question in other committed love relationships, do we? If we do, if we're asking that question in other relationships we have, like a marriage or something like that, that's, that's really the si- sign of kind of a diseased relationship. Something is, is off right there, Right. Listen, if you're, if you're going to marry, women, if you're going to marry a guy and, and you're, you're standing at the end of the aisle there and uh, they say, listen, I just want to know before we go down the aisle, how abusive can I be before you're going to draw the line? You know, how, where, where should I understand that, that, <laughs> that line to be, right? Or, or, or men, if she says, okay, before we do this, how many times can I commit adultery before you're kind of not good with it? Uh, in that case, if that is what, you know, that soulmate or somebody is saying to you, then number one, get them some counseling, some, you know, they need to go to therapy and you need to find a new soulmate, right? <laughs> Cause they're not ready for marriage. They're not marriage, you know, material at that point. So, um, that's not somebody who's ready. Marriage does not ask the question, how bad can I be in this relationship before I lose you? You know, even, you know, we want our spouse to be happy. I want Melissa to be happy. But, you know, if I spend every day, if my focus is on keeping Melissa happy by limiting my mistakes, that's actually not the formula for a good marriage, is it? That's not the formula. That, that, that's called conflict avoidance. It's unhealthy. And in spiritual talk, that, that's known as a sin management. That's sin management. And it leads to, to walking in fear of the one with whom we are meant to walk in love. Amen? I'm going to put that on screen because that's pretty good. Right? <laughs> Sin management leads to walking in fear of the one with whom we are meant to walk in love. Right? And and that is what that relationship, our relationship with God, it is a love-based relationship. It is a relationship of celebration and love. And it is out of that love and that, that just grace that Mel was just talking about, It is out of that, that we are spurred to do good works. It is out of that love relationship. What we should be asking isn't how bad can I be before you kick me out of the circle. It's God, how can I please you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I show my trust in you and and celebrate what you have done for me? How can I grow into the person that this relationship was created for? How can I do that? Help me do that. So we can ask the question and ask him to help us with that. How can I live a life that reflects you to others? Let's keep reading that scripture in 2 Peter. In verse 9, he says, For anyone who lacks these things, so if you're not growing in one of those areas, what does he say? He says that person is short-sighted and blind and is forgetful. You've forgotten something. You're forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Isn't that an interesting way he puts that? He doesn't, say, he doesn't say you're kicked out. He says you're a child of God who has forgotten who you are. Amen. Isn't that good? The Apostle Peter here is saying what you need to do, if you find yourself in this kind of a situation, what you need to do is go and learn your identity in Christ. Right. Amen? Amen. Uh, maybe you need to like, Go find a pastor who maybe has taught a series about identity. Maybe it's called 2020 or something like that. And, and re-watch those podcasts and download those notes from the website. But immerse yourself in that. Because a lot of our problem, a lot of our problem is forgetting. It's forgetting. Forgetting who we really are. Remind yourself. Remind yourself of who you are and then live accordingly. Live out of who you really are. That's why identity is so important to believers.
0: It's, it's just like... Telling the Lord, all these heavy chains you broke off of me and freed me from, how, how much can I wear those before, yeah. why would we do that? Why would we do that? The chains have been broken. It would be to be putting on dead chains. Yeah. It would be p- to be putting ch- chain fragments in your pocket to weigh you down when you've been mm. freed of the chains that once held you.
1: That's a good point.
0: There are no chains. There are no chains anymore. Leave them. Leave them at the dust of your feet and walk in your victory. You don't even have to look back at them. Walk in your victory in Christ. Amen. Um, Okay, so this question, question number six. Scott, you talked about all believers being priests. Mm -hmm. Does this mean... I can confess my sin to fellow believers and receive forgiveness. Isn't Jesus, our high priest, the only way to salvation and forgiveness? Good question. So this is drawing from two passages that he mentioned. One was first Peter chapter two, where we are called to fulfill that original calling of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. That's right. And all believers, not just the pl- paid clergy or full-time ministry, all believers are, are called to be priests, right. which is so amazing. And we can pray for one another. And we can encourage one another. And the Apostle James tells us to confess our sins mm. one to another. But Scott's going to explain Sorry, there's, what that means?
1: There's some important points to bring out here, and this is a good question because the language here in what James is talking about has nothing to do with receiving like spiritual absolution, you know, from God or from a priest or something like that. And in fact, what does it say is the result of this prayer and confession with one another? Healing. Healing that you may be healed, body and soul, right? But this isn't about confessing your sins to receive forgiveness from God.
0: Because who can only do that?
1: Uh, yeah, Jesus is Only the one who... God. Yeah, Only God, God. does God that. forgives us. Yeah. Right. And it's important to remember, who is James talking to here in this, in this letter? He's talking Christians. to the church. He's talking to believers, mm-hmm. Christians. And so this has nothing to do with praying a prayer of salvation. Um, it, actually, it doesn't do a person any good uh, if they have never received Jesus before to go and confess their sins to another person as far as getting them into heaven right? Some of you might be aware of the, the like, 12-step programs, which are really good for, for people who are struggling with addictions. There's a, there's a famous step, step five, right? If anybody's familiar with that, step five is actually where you go to someone, you go to other people, and you, uh, you, you confess your faults, you confess your sins one to another. And it's a great thing, and it's a, it's a wonderful healing type of act. Has nothing to do with, like, getting you into heaven, step five, but it is actually has some spiritual benefit, that, uh, that James talks about.
0: So the confession of our faults and our weaknesses and our sins between disciples is powerful and healthy because we're the body of Christ, and we don't want to walk in darkness, and we don't want to walk in deceit, and we don't want to walk in hypocrisy, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we have to be honest and transparent with one another walk because we're light. to walk in the light. Amen. And confessing our sins to the people that we trust is part of living in accountability. Mm-hmm. Everybody pretending like they're perfect and they've got no issues is helping no one. It helps no one. Um, And what does help is when we can be accountable, right? You can even say, I told Jesus I was sorry and I know he forgives me, but I need your accountability. Mm. Not to fall down in this trap again. I need your strength and accountability and I need the Holy Spirit that's inside of you to talk to me because I need, I need structure and accountability, and I want the strength of community. Mm-hmm. And also, when we show true repentance for how we've wronged even someone else, you did, you did your brother or sister in Christ wrong, you know it's good to go apologize?
1: Sure.
0: Right? Yeah. Jesus already forgave me. I don't even have to apologize to him. No, that's not loving community. Mm-mm. That's not, or humility, Mm-mm. right? Mm-mm. It is such a beautiful thing to tell someone, boy, that was That was wrong of me. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's love. That's relationship building. Mm -hmm. Those things are relationship building.
1: And I'll just add in here, if you're a person who is serious about holiness and righteousness, you really want to endeavor to be a person who lives more that way, I think we need to be more confessional. Because let's be honest... Sometimes for some of us, it's a lot easier to go to God and say, "I'm sorry, get repentance," than go to a person. And sometimes we might do the same thing over and over and over. And it's easy to just go, "God, I did it again, sorry." You know. But if you know you got to go to that person and tell them, "I did it again," that's that's tough, isn't it? And so sometimes repentance can—it can—we can can just sort of fall into cheap
0: repentance.
1: If I could use that phrase.
0: And you know what cheap repentance does? It leads to secret epidemics in the body of Christ. Oh, so so I'm going to mention a secret epidemic and get everybody's attention back. Pornography. Uh-oh. Pornography affects, are you ready for this? 68% of Christian men in the church. That's over two thirds, friends, not in the world, in the church. That means it is a secret and and epidemic struggle, a poisonous secret struggle. And do you know why it's a struggle? Because nobody wants to confess their sins one to another. Uh -uh. Nobody wants to admit the secret shame and addiction. Instead, they'll just tell God they're sorry and struggle day after day after day after day. I heard a, a Christian psychologist say the other day, to someone who was interviewing them, why is there such rampant sexual addiction and pornography in the church with Christians? And he says, because they won't confess their sins one to another. And they don't receive accountability because everyone thinks they're alone. Mm. What a lie of the devil. What What a dirty, filthy lie that keeps people in bondage. So friends, do you want to get free from pornography or gossip or gluttony? Whatever it is. Stop now. I can stop now? It just got too real. It just got too real for some people in this charismatic church. Ease it back. Do you want to be free? Do you want your family free? Amen. Do you want your best friends free? Yes. Then we have to be real with each other. And we're not real to say, feel sorry for me. We're real to say, I need need victory. Let's walk together and get Mm -hmm. our victory. Mm -hmm. Let's be accountable together and get our victory because I'm not interested in staying the same. Mm -hmm. Are you interested in staying the same? Do you want to have the same week you had last week and the week before and the week before because you can't get free from something?
1: Come on. Yeah.
0: Jesus paid too high a price for us to repeat our failures over and over again.
1: That's good.
0: Let's be light. Amen. You're light when you're free.
1: Amen. That's good. Amen. Thank you.
0: Praise God.
1: It's good. All right. Let's jump. Uh, let's see. Do we have time? Uh, let, let's see. Oh, I think we better just that one. It right, was a good one. It was a good one. We're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go to question number eight. Here we go. Here's our last one. Why does Revelation say that there will be a new heaven and a new earth? What's wrong with the current heaven? It's a good question. All right, so the word heaven is an interesting uh, word used in the Bible uh, because in the Greek, it's the same word that's used to mean the spiritual realm that we would say heaven, right? The spiritual realm where we associate with like God's throne. Um, but it's also the word in the Bible that means the universe, the cosmos, the, the stars in the sky, even just the sky above us, um, the, the air above us, the realm of the air. And there's a time, Jesus talks about the birds in the heavens, right? And he's not talking about birds flying around God's throne room. He's just talking about the birds in the sky. Um, and so there can be two different dimensions there. Um, the spiritual dimension where we associate with God's throne room and the physical d- dimension of everything that is above us. And I think here the word is uh, referring uh, basically to this cosmos of ours, the sky and up. And uh, so we're talking about a renewed earth and a, and a renewed universe. Now, on a little side note, if I have time, uh, what's interesting here, really interesting here, in the Greek, in the Greek, I know we're going to get nerdy for just a second, hang with me, there's two words for new. There's two words for new. One refers to new in terms of time. Uh, for instance, you had one car and you got a new car. The second car is not the first car, right? It's a total different car. Uh, it, it, so it's new, and that is this word neos, like neo from... Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, but there's a second word for new in the Greek, and that has to do with quality. It's this this word kinos. and it, it has to do with quality. For instance, like you refurbished your house. You planted some flowers. You painted the walls. You, you put a new coat of paint and made everything pretty. Renewed your house. The word used in Revelation here for the new heaven and new earth, it's the second one. Isn't that interesting? It's the second one, which tells which tells me that God is not giving up on his creation. He's not giving up on his creation. He's not torching everything just to sweep it all into the garbage and start over. He is rather redeeming the creation, the creation he once created and called good. He's redeeming creation in some amazing way. Just as he is redeeming you, you are a new creation, amen? And did you know when you die, the Bible says that he is going to resurrect you, he is going to resurrect you in a glorified version of yourself. And and even when he says uh, the, the, old, the first earth will pass away, the verb there for pass away, it means rendered void, not destroyed. Rendered void, it's just, it's like it's obsolete. And so he's not going to, you know, he's not going to destroy you and make a new you and call that you, you, right? The good news of the gospel isn't, You're going to live forever. Well, actually, you're going to be burnt up and go away. But we're going to create a new you. It's going to have all your memories. And we'll forget about you. And so, yay. That's not good news, right? No, it's going to be you. It is you. But it is a renewed you. And so perhaps a better picture that we can take. We can take God at his word when he says he makes all things new. He makes all things new. He doesn't give up on stuff and throw it away. He makes what he loves like new, doesn't he, right? So this is a big difference between he makes new things, between he makes things new. Isn't that something? I think that's pretty, pretty good stuff there. Okay,
0: I think we're out of time. Okay, well, we're going to finish up. We want to read Second Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is just a reminder. This is the truth. Step into the real you. Mm-hmm. Step into the you that Christ made for you, purchased for you, gifted to you through his grace. That's good. Um, what was old is becoming new. That's, That's so right. beautiful.
1: And, and guess which Greek word that new is? It's the second one. It's the same one we just read in Revelation, right there, right? So, what he's going to do for all the universe, he is doing in you. The old is passing away. It doesn't mean it's scrapped and forgotten, it's healed. God heal. He's a healing God. He's a healing God, right? Your destiny isn't to be replaced, but redeemed. He's not into replacing you. He wants to redeem you, right? What God does is transform you into the you you were always meant to be. That is his plans for you. He wants you to be the you you were always meant to be, the one that he calls good. It goes on to say in verse, verse 20 that we are ambassadors of that message, and so we want to carry that message far and wide, right? And, and that's our calling. That is our new identity, to be ambassadors. Paul says, I entreat you, I implore you, I beg you, he's saying here, to be reconciled to God. It's a beautiful passage, right? And then the next verse he says is, so as we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. That grace that Mel was just talking about. Paul says, as we work together with God, that means we get to cooperate with God, that's pretty, pretty heavy stuff, like, like, a, like a co-worker. So don't receive His grace in vain. His grace is given to you in order to produce something, to produce, for, it's for you to, to change, to grow, not to be passive about it, not to be passive about it. So we want to we end this series by just encouraging you, giving you, giving you a charge. We are many things. We've talked about throughout the, these eight weeks. We're many things, as as image bearers of the divine. But one of the things that we are called to is, in, in, those of us who are in Christ, is to be co-workers. We are co-laborers, co-workers with Him, with God, partners with God Almighty. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. You are a partner with God Almighty. You know, he could do everything on his own, couldn't he? He's omnipotent. He could have done it all, all on his own, but he chooses not to. What he wants to do, he wants to do in us and through us, right? So, so what, he wants to, what he wants to accomplish on the planet, what he wants to accomplish in our community, he wants to accomplish through us. The, the change that you want to see in your, your family, he wants to accomplish through you, right? What you want to see in your workplace or in your schools, He wants to accomplish through you and me. He wants to do that through us. In your relationships, the change that you want to see, He wants to accomplish through you. And so, rather than us just pray, uh, God, bring revival, you know, or or God, change hearts. God, just go do, do your thing. Go do what you do. Rather, what we should be praying is, God, make me the person that you want me to be, so that I can be the person who, who makes the change that you want to make in this world around us. Amen. That, that's your identity. Yeah, yeah, the worship team, you guys can come on out. That's your identity as a, as a coworker with God. And so this week, I, I just want to encourage you, pray daily, make it your daily prayer to ask God, Holy Spirit, show me those opportunities throughout the day, wherever I'm going, show me those opportunities where I can step in to your work, where I can be the change, where I can expand the boundaries of the kingdom wherever we go. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Let's just, let's take a moment. Let's just close our eyes in prayer before we all gather together to worship. Lord, we thank you, Father, for changing us, for the power of how your Spirit renews us, that you would open our eyes of the the holy and glorious honor of partnering with you to do your will. Because, Lord, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. And we know that we bring that with us wherever we go and what we say and do. So may that continue, begin now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord, and I just really feel the Spirit of God just speaking out renewal, renewal, renewal. And this can be a time where we sing a couple songs before we leave, or it can be a time of transformation for you. Yes. It can be transformative. And there is an anointing that breaks the yoke of bondage, and worship is an access point. Worship is an access point. And so I believe that if you are struggling with an addiction, that in the name of Jesus, that can be broken today. It can be broken today if you want it to be broken today. So as we worship the Lord, you can stand in your seat or you can come up to this altar and you can lay down what it is that is holding you back from experiencing the fullness of the Lord in you and from being truly free. And that could be addiction from shopping and spending too much money or prescription drugs or alcohol or too much television or too much media. It doesn't matter what it is. It's something that's keeping you bound and something that's preventing you from being free in Christ to bring the law of liberty that you have gotten for yourself to other people. So the altar is open and the Lord is ready and willing to receive that from you and change you and set you free today. So let's worship the Lord together. Let's lean into his spirit. Let's receive from him and let him impart what he has for us in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.